Good afternoon. We are here in the case of Thomas Charles Bookwalter versus the Indiana Election Commission et al. Um, Ms. Harder, you have reserved five minutes for rebuttal. Yes, Your Honor. And um, Ms. Weiss and uh, Ms. Barton, welcome. All right. Um, Ms. Harder, the case is with you. Good afternoon. May it please the court. Charles Bookwalter is a Republican, and no one disputes this. He appeared on the ballot as a Republican state delegate candidate this past May. He could not, however, appear on the ballot as a U.S. representative candidate in that same election cycle because his candidacy was challenged pursuant to Indiana Code Section 3827. He was challenged because he did not check either box on his declaration of candidacy um, affirming party affiliation. So at the time he decided to run for U.S. representative, he was eligible because he had voted in a Republican primary. But then Indiana Code 3827 was amended to add a second primary. Charlie did not vote in the 2020 primary because there was no one to vote for. Um, the races in his district were uncontested. He sought to get certification from his party chair, Deb Ottinger, and she refused to certify him. She said that she would support him running for other Republican offices, but questioned why he wanted to challenge the incumbent. So in, in all those primaries, when you say uncontested, does that mean uncontested against those of the same party in the primary, or were they just uncontested, as in there were no Democrats running? Um, Your Honor, in some cases it was both. Um, in every case it was, you know, in the primary there was no one else for the party, but in Indiana, because of the Republican supermajority, many of those cases it was the election, because um, the primary was the election because there was no challenger. So according to the commission and according to um, Charlie's party chair, he's only a Republican when they allow him to be one, when he runs for the office of their choosing. So this incumbent protection act makes little sense. It also violates our state and federal constitutions. That is, the commission has not and cannot articulate a compelling government interest here, nor that the statute is narrowly tailored where anyone can vote in any primary. The commission also has not and cannot explain why Charlie is a Republican when he runs for one office, but not when he runs for another. I want to start talking about our state constitution. So the commission didn't brief this. Can I ask you a quick question? Uh, yes, Your Honor. <coughs> I think your client, excuse me, the appellant filed in the primary, um, for the primary on January 6th <coughs> for the uh, primary in 2022. <clears throat> Is there a date that's the soonest you can file your candidacy by in a coming primary, if you know? Um, meaning, is it January 1st or? Um, I'm not sure there's a soonest, uh, Your Honor. I know there's a deadline for when you can. I don't know if there's an opening to the window. I know there's a closing. It appears he, he, he filed early on, so I was just curious. He did. Okay, but go ahead, back to your argument. Um, so our state constitution under Article 1, Section 23, which is our equal protection provision, has the Collins versus Day test. So there's two parts. So we have the disparate treatment has to be reasonably related to inherent characteristics that distinguish the unequal classes. 
And then the second part is the preferential treatment must be equally available to all persons similarly situated. So here, Charlie was treated differently based on what office he was running for, differently than candidates who, like him, also didn't vote in two Indiana primaries but were not challenged, and differently than those who had a party chair that certified based on their party membership, not party membership plus their own personal approval. You know, this kind of touches on something that uh, perhaps we can talk about a little bit later, too. You speak about freedom of association. Don't parties have freedom of association, too, on the other side of that coin? Yes, Your Honor. They, have the, they also have First and Fourteenth uh, Amendment freedom of association rights. And they have freedom to um, choose uh, f folks who they, they're, the case law from our United States Supreme Court says that they can endorse candidates. There is no case law that says they can select them. And this statute here allows them to select candidates through the party chair who can withhold certification and just let those who she or he wants to run, run. So while they do have rights, they don't have the right to have this monolithic control, which is how the US Supreme Court put it. And they don't have the right to have this monolithic control to choose who runs for office. So for instance, we'd be in a different situation if Deb Ottinger said, hey, Charlie, you know, I don't support your candidacy. I'm going to endorse your opponent. But I know you're Republican and you can run. But that's not what happened here. She made it so he couldn't run at all. And one person cannot speak for an entire political party statewide or nationally. So yes, they do have rights, but they don't have the right to monolithic control or to select candidates. What our two-party system has turned out to be, however, and isn't Indiana an unusual place in that we have uh, a very strong libertarian uh, uh, party in comparison to other states? which takes me to the next point, which is, why couldn't he have just run as an independent then? Why couldn't he have chosen, I mean, this could not have come as a total surprise. Why couldn't he have just to chosen to run outside the system then? Well, Your Honor, there's a few problems with him running as an independent. One, he's not independent, and he actually did run as a Republican in that same election cycle. So there's no dispute that he is a Republican. He would have to lie and say he was something else to run as an independent. But, but more than that, there's some other problems with that. So in Indiana, for instance, our General Assembly has not seen an independent candidate in, I believe, over 100 years. So even though we have maybe some libertarian grassroots stuff going on, they're, they're unelectable. I mean, honestly, Your Honor, in Indiana, if you're a Democrat, it's hard to get elected. Um, so it's not fair to say, okay, you have to run as a party. That one, you're not. You already ran as a Republican for one race, but you can't run for the other. So that doesn't really work here. And the other problem with that is, had he run as an independent, the Republican Party would likely ban him. Um, they've done so before, and then he would face that ban um, from the party if he, if he broke party lines and did so. If the chair's going to ban him essentially anyways, What's the problem? Well, there's a 10-year ban for uh, the party ban that they could do, which is much longer than the already cumbersome two- to four-year ban here. So it puts him in an even worse position. So he's got to lie. He has to. And then there's fundraising concerns, right? A lot of uh, fundraising money comes from the two main parties and not. But isn't that a reason for the party to be interested in its own freedom of association, that it will throw its resources behind someone that it chooses to put those resources behind. Well, it, it could have thrown all of its resources against the incumbent, and it probably would have, but Charlie deserved the right 
pursuant to his First and Fourteenth Amendment rights to at least have the opportunity to run. If they wanted to endorse the other candidate, that would have been acceptable, but they can't preclude him from running completely, especially here where we have this fact of he did actually run as a Republican, and I'm not sure how we get past that. They can't say they were, the party rejected him because he ran as the party. Why wasn't a challenge filed to his dele delegate candidacy? One was not filed here. So, you know, under these facts, it just doesn't make sense to force him to run as an independent or to even claim, credibly so at least, that the party had rejected him because that's not what happened here. You mentioned the 10-year ban a, a few moments ago, uh, so I would assume you're familiar with the the Hero v. Lake County Election Board case. Yes. And the Seventh Circuit just last year, they upheld the Republican Party's ability to ban somebody from 10 years running in a primary, right? Uh, how is that case different than this one? I, I mean, it's not a 10-year ban, but it's about a party's ability to control, I suppose, um, um, limits or conditions to participate in a primary. The Seventh Circuit said that they could do that. Uh, they, I believe they called it a, a minor imposition. Do you not agree with that case, or is that case distinguishable? Uh, well, both, Your Honor. I don't agree with it, and it's distinguishable. So the Seventh Circuit case involved a man who was previously Republican, but then there was something in his county where uh, he started throwing support, visible, vocal support behind, I believe, a independent, maybe a libertarian candidate. He had yard signs. And so, and I believe he was warned, right? Like, hey, what are you doing? Um, and so he broke party lines and went libertarian. And that's one of the risks Charlie would have faced if he would have done so, right? Charlie didn't do that here, so that's a distinguishing feature. The party didn't ban him. He actually ran as a Republican. And there are some other problems with the hero. Um, I know the commission thinks it's a great case for their side. Um, but we have to go back to the Anderson verdict test for assessing ballot access and election voting things. And so Hero's kind of an outlier for a lot of reasons. So one, it, it's not about this case is not about a party ban. So Charlie wasn't banned. He wasn't even rejected by the party. He ran as the party. And then Hero's about one man. So Hero couldn't run. He pissed the party off, right? So Charlie isn't the only person impacted by Indiana Code 3827. The majority of Hoosiers, they don't vote in primaries right now. And the statute sort of operates as a disincentive, a cycle of disenfranchisement. So if there's nobody to vote for, people don't vote. If they don't vote, they can't run. If people don't run, there's nobody to vote for. And so it's different than just in Hero where it's one man. Here it's the majority of Hoosiers who are not primary voters. And if the party chairs behave as Charlie's party chair did, they can't rely on certification either as a means to get on the ballot. So do Hero we, is distinguishable from this case. Do we even get to the constitutional issue given um, issues with the filing of the record? Yes, Your Honor. So the filing of the record impacts, and there's a lot I could say about it, it impacts his judicial review piece, which is part of his filing. We still have the complaint for injunctive and declaratory relief, which exists um, regardless of the record issue. So, yes, we, we keep heading. All roads lead to a decision on the merits about the constitutionality here. The case seems to say unless you filed a, a, a record uh, of the administrative proceedings, then uh, you cannot proceed uh, well, uh, in, with a petition for judicial review, I, I, well, as I understand the law. 
So that's what Top says. And then we have Meyer, and Meyer presents a very narrow um, exception to that, where there, in, in Meyer, it was, there was an error about some mathematical calculation about the value of a family farm. And essentially, the Meyer exception, although narrow, fits here. So Meyer is, if there's no factual dispute, and all we're asking is for the court to decide legal issues based on the face of the complaint, then um, it would proceed. I know the other side disagrees, but again, regardless of this court's decision about the judicial review part of Charlie's filing, his other piece, the complaint for declaratory and injunctive relief, remains. So I, I I'm arguing. Understand. If you can't proceed on anything without the record. Well, you can proceed on the. Appeal without the record. How can you proceed on any claim in the trial court? Well, there's two parts. So he filed a complaint for judicial, a petition for judicial review, and a complaint for declaratory and injunctive relief, and they're separate. So the record goes to the judicial relief piece. At this point, the commission cannot offer him relief. He filed that in effort to get a stay, which was the best chance for him to have any chance of getting on the record so that he could run a successful campaign. Absent that, now we're just focused on fixing the statute, which comes under the other portion, his complaint for declaratory and injunctive relief, which is separate from judicial review. Which poses the next, the question in that vein, uh, how, you know, the... Uh doctrines of the courts is, is to try and avoid answering constitutional questions unless absolutely necessary and that elections come and pass so it appears any uh, declaratory relief that he would have sought that would have um, benefited him is, is come and gone well your honor we have the great public importance exception to our mootness doctrine right and so we have the two elements that it's a matter of great public importance and it's likely to reoccur. Here, um, I believe the commission admitted before the trial court that the issue is one of great public importance, if you look at the transcript, volume two at 40. And then they also admitted in their briefing the constitutional issues are capable of repetition, Ida Pelli's brief at 22. So they don't dispute that those elements are met. What they say is, okay, but it doesn't evade review. Evading review is a federal requirement for their mootness doctrine. So our Indiana Supreme Court in the CO case in 2020, we had a split and Justice Massa and Slaughter would like to adopt the federal standard about evade review. But the majority's position was no, Indiana sta standard is just these two elements and that's the way it is unless and until they tell us otherwise. So with the commission admitting the two elements are met, um, I, I don't think we have a mootness problem because we have the matter of great public importance exception or the public interest exception here. And, and if we want to change the standard to the federal standard or talk about that, um, you know, there is an evade review piece here. It's not easy or cheap to bring these lawsuits once a candidate, um, especially a grassroots candidate who isn't an incumbent, it's very difficult for them to seek uh, remedies once they're off the ballot, right? They, it's, it's not easy or fun to do. So I'm not sure um, that this doesn't meet the evades review, but it doesn't have to in any event. So I have a few seconds left. Um, don't really want to launch into anything new. I guess you'll hear from me on rebuttal. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. I would be remiss in saying that I did err in not recognizing Kurt Nicely, who wrote the um, amicus brief. Sorry about that. So I recognize you. I understand you're present, but you will not participate in the argument. All right. Uh, Ms. Harder, you have five minutes left for rebuttal. And uh, Ms. Weiss, the case is with you now. 
and you may proceed when you're ready. May it please the court. Uh, this court should affirm the decision below for the following three reasons. First, the trial court properly dismissed the petition for judicial review because Mr. Bookwalter failed to file the agency record. Second, the complaint is moot. And third, the statute is constitutional even if this court wants to reach the merits. Turning to my first point, that the trial court properly dismissed Mr. Bookwalter's uh, petition for judicial review because he failed to file the agency record. Under AOPA, Mr. Bookwalter had 30 days after he filed his petition to either file the agency record or request an extension of time to do so. But he didn't do either of those things here. Instead, he attached five documents to his petition, um, which is insufficient under AOPA. Mr. And Bookwalter's counsel seemed to indicate that, um, that there was kind of an end run around that on constitutional issues. Can you say that again? The, counsel for the appellant seemed to indicate that um, as far as constitutional issues, there seemed to be an end run against any argument, technical argument about failing to file uh, any agency brief or anything like that. Because of the complaint for declaratory injunctive relief? Yes, well. But no, I think put another way, I thought I understood counsel's argument, the Myers exception, uh, if I got the case right, but is that if the facts and, and the issue are not in dispute, then why do you need the, the agency record? Therefore, that excuses the non-filing of a record and a petition for judicial review. What he said, yeah. So uh, Meyer predates Robertson and uh, teaching our posterity success. And Robertson, which was a 2014 Supreme Court case, uh, First American attached uh, several documents to its petition, but failed to file the agency record. And it also claimed that the documents were sufficient for the, trial, for the court's review of its claims. But our Supreme Court specifically disagreed with that and said that IOPA creates this bright line rule and that um, a petitioner needs to include all of the documents from the agency record, even if they are unnecessary to decide the agency action. So, Meyer so doesn't. Why, why do you think that exists? Isn't that kind of a legal gotcha? All right. I mean, if, if we all know what the facts and the law is, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, so Meyer. Sure, are you sure that Myers has been abandoned? Myers hasn't been abandoned, but it's an extremely narrow exception, if you want to call it that, where essentially the FSSA um, waived their issue because they conceded the dispositive issue at hand. They conceded um, that there was a mathematical mistake which made the individual Myers eligible for um, Medicaid. So that's not what we have here. The commission never conceded that the statute was constitutional. And our law, as it currently stands, does not say that where you have a pure question of law, the petitioner doesn't need to file the agency record. That's not what Robertson and Topps has provided. Um, and no court since Topps has allowed a petitioner to proceed without filing a complete agency record because of this issue regarding um, satellite litigation and courts from second guessing the record. And also, if there are documents that are unnecessary for the court's review, AOPA does allow, um, provide a mechanism for parties to agree to a modified record. Um, which didn't happen here. If a, it shouldn't be on the petitioner or the trial court to decide which documents are necessary for the court's review because of this judicial economy issue. So the bright line rule from Robertson and Topps applies here and the trial court properly dismissed the petition for judicial review. As far as the complaint for declaratory and injunctive relief, um, the trial court properly dismissed that as well because it's moot. There's nothing that this court can do to grant any relief to Mr. Bookwalter because the May 2022 primary election is over. Um, 
the public interest exception doesn't apply because this issue is not likely to evade review. Um, he could have obtained meaningful review had he moved more swiftly throughout the litigation process. So do you know, uh, I asked the question earlier, when the earliest date you can file in a primary election is? Yes, it's January 5th, and he filed it January 6th. Okay, so he files January 6th, and then there's objections to his candidacy files, I believe the... 10th, or 8th and 10th. Okay, and then, and then, then the actual hearing by the election commission was March 14th? Um, I believe they adjudicated it on February 18th. February 18th, all right. And he filed his action on March 14th, is that correct? Um, I, March 14th, yes, he filed his petition for judicial review. March 14th. All right. And then he filed a motion to continue. Um, he never filed a preliminary injunction, um, which would have been- a motion to continue. Could you explain that further? I believe that was on March 16th. He filed a motion to continue in the trial court um, for the hearing. Um, but he, courts have the ability to address this issue in a timely fashion. Um, in Holcomb versus TL, that was in 2021, um, the entire case was resolved within two months of somebody filing the complaint. And courts have the ability to resolve this issue quickly, especially election lawyers who um, are well equipped to handle these run-of-the-mill uh, candidate challenges. The deadlines and um, the timeline is not a surprise for anybody here. We all know that the May 2022 primary election is in May. Um, yet we waited three and a half weeks before filing his petition. Um, no preliminary injunction, which would have been an interlocutory um, appealable order as of right. Um, if Mr. Brookwalter had moved with, with diligence, as the parties did in Holcomb versus TL, for example, this could have been resolved by the May 22 primary. So are you saying he should have filed his petition for judicial review and his complaint on, for instance, later the day of the 18th of February or on the 19th? I think the 18th was a Friday, if I remember correctly, and then okay. Monday he could have filed it. Um, Tuesday um, we could have asked for... Again, two months, let's say it was on the 19th, two months would have been April 19th. If we know the law allows up to 30 days. Correct. But even if this court does want to get to the merits of the statute, of the, uh, statute to determine whether it's constitutional, turning to my third point, that it is constitutional. Um, as far as his right to first um, freely associate, the Anderson verdict test applies. And so under that test, we look to the burden under the first part of the test. If the burden is low, then um, rational basis applies. If we have a high burden, then strict scrutiny applies. Hero involves the exact same issue here. Although the case started because he was banned from the Republican Party for 10 years, the effect of that was that he was not allowed to appear on the, prim the Republican primary ballot in Indiana. And the Seventh Circuit specifically held that removing or preventing a person from appearing on a Republican primary ballot is a low burden, not triggering strict scrutiny. And that's because, as Your Honor stated earlier, there are alternative ways to access the general election by running as an independent. And Mr. Brookwalter, as running as an independent, could have touted his Republican views. He could have um, handed out yard uh, put up yard signs, flyers, and um, run on a platform identical to any political party. Um, the burden is low here. And so, uh, because the burden's low, we conduct a sort of rational basis where the court defers to the state's interest if the restrictions are reasonable and non-discriminatory. Well, the Constitution puts no other limitations other than age 
and residency, does it, on the ability to run in an election? Correct. So um, when the framers basically put together the Constitution, um, do you think that they considered that the legislature would put um, potentially what could be seemed as arbitrary decisions on who could run how? I'm not sure if they anticipated, but I don't think that the provisions are arbitrary. I think that they are neatly, or they are at least reasonably tied to the state's interest here. Well, um, I mean, okay, that's true. All right, so it's tied to one primary, and now it's two primaries, and who's to say in another 10 years it not, might not be voted into before primaries? Well, so is there any limitation to that, given the wording of the Constitution was just has age and residency? I don't think that there is, first, it's not this court's position to a role to anticipate what litigation is gonna arise in the future, um, but. Well, we do have to consider, I mean, anything that we start is a rock rolling downhill. So we do have to look into the future as to what the consequences of any ruling that we have made is going to do. Well, right now, the statute as it stands requires two primary elections or the subsection B, which is the county chair exception, and those two provisions are constitutional. Um, the first part is reasonably related to the state's interest, which, just to go back to that for a minute, um, opposing counsel seems to suggest that this interest doesn't exist, an interest in a party's right to select its members and candidates who will represent them, but that, in, that interest has been clearly established in case after case in Hero um, and many uh, Supreme Court cases um, so that interest definitely does exist, but under subsection A, voting in two primary elections tends to show that you are affiliated with the party that you are voting with. Well, so would four. I'm sorry, what was that? So would four. Correct. Um, and in fact, a voter must intend to, um, I believe, vote for a majority of the candidates or nominees in the general election if they are to obtain that ballot. Um, and it also shows that you value the voting process and these parties want individuals who are affiliated with, with their party and value the voting process to represent them. Um, so that is reasonably related to the state's interest here. Under the second provision, as far as certification from the county chair, the county chair is elected by the party and that also is reasonably related to the state's interest here because presumably she reflects the party's beliefs as a whole. Um, by refusing to certify a potential candidate, it prevents unwanted individuals from representing that party. And the county chair is presumably in the best position to judge the uh, potential candidate because they know them best, or parties are organized at the county level. So because these two burdens, because the burden is low and rational basis applies, and because they're reasonably related to the state's interest here, um, the statute doesn't violate his right to clearly associate. As far as the um, First and Fourteenth Amendment challenges, uh, the statute is not vague or overbroad. It clearly states what an aspiring candidate must do in order to declare a candidacy, which is vote twice, or seek an exception from the county chair. And a person of ordinary intelligence would understand what to do here. The fact that um, the county chair has ability to use discretion doesn't render the statute vague. And the fact that certify our member aren't defined also doesn't render it vague because when words aren't defined in a statute, we simply defer to the plain ordinary meaning. Um, and Mr. Brookwalter knew what he had to do in order to 
declare a candidacy. He knew he didn't qualify under subsection A, so he sought certification from the county chair, and she ultimately decided not to certify him. Um, so the, the statute isn't vague or overbroad. As far as uh, the statute, the equal protection claim, it doesn't violate his right to equal protection because the statute doesn't treat anybody differently. Everybody, no matter who they are, uh, if they want to declare their candidacy for a primary election, they have to do so in accordance with the statute and meet one of the two qualifications. So I have, a, I have a, what might seem like a dumb question about the primaries. Mm -hmm. All right, so now the statute says you have to vote in two of the most recent primaries, or two most recent primaries. Um, and even though those people are running, say, unopposed in that, there still is a primary. In other words, there still are polling places and people can go vote. Is that correct or no? Um, if they're running unopposed, someone can go vote, you're saying? Yeah, I believe that they are, if they're running unopposed, they can still vote. But it's also not just the person's, the last two primaries, it's the last two primaries that that person voted in. So even if he, uh, Mr. Brookwalter, I couldn't have voted in, I think, 2020, there was a primary before that. They occur every year except for after a presidential election. So he had the opportunity to vote um, prior to that as well, which would have... So is it, is it the last two primaries? The last two primaries, primaries they in which voted that person voted. In. Okay, yes. so they don't have to be consecutive? No. Okay. Um, and then lastly, as far as the open courts, there's nothing in the statute that's preventing Mr. Bookwalter from accessing the court to seek judicial review or the complaint for declaratory inductive relief. Um, the issue isn't the statute, it's the timing of the election process and the fact that you need to move swiftly throughout the litigation process in order to obtain meaningful review. Uh, because the trial court properly dismissed Mr. Brookwalter's petition for judicial review and the complaint, and because the statute is constitutional, this court should affirm. Thank you. Any additional questions? No. Thank you. Counsel, you have five minutes for rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, so what I didn't hear from the commission was what the government interest here is. So I heard in the trial court that the purpose of the statute was to prevent party rating. Party rating is when someone who is not a Democrat or Republican runs as one. Here, there's no party rating where Charlie ran as a Republican. He's not trying to raid the Republican Party. He is a Republican. Then in the briefing below, we had sort of a, a different, we dropped the term, the commission dropped the term party rating and just went, uh, the party can choose who's affiliated with them. Again, Charlie is affiliated with the party. He ran as one. And then in uh, another case uh, involving this statute, Rainey versus the Indiana Election Commission, the Election Commission argued party membership isn't enough. You have to demonstrate commitment to the party. And so we've heard, I've heard, at least three different government interests here. I'm trying to figure out which one it is. But regardless of which one of those three it is, the statute can never achieve that goal when anyone can vote in any primary. So it's not indicia of your commitment to the party or your affiliation. And where we have Charlie running as a Republican, there's no party rating here. So I, I just, I've not heard any government interest. Also, council seems to think it's just a low uh, intrusion but we have plenty of case law. We have e the EU case and we have um, Burdick that say when the burden on ballot access is severe, 
Strict scrutiny applies. If the challenge law burdens the rights of political parties and their members, it can survive constitutional scrutiny only with a compelling interest that's narrowly tailored. Here, I'm not even hearing a reasonable interest. I'm not hearing a consistent interest, and the statute certainly is not narrowly tailored. We've also not heard any explanation for why one primary wasn't enough. Um, and, we, and we know that there's some legislation in the works right now to sort of tighten the requirements so that it's not just the last two you voted, but the last two, period. Also, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that our U.S. Supreme Court has never upheld a restriction lasting as long as up to 48 months. It upheld an 11-month restriction in the context of a closed primary, and it upheld a one-year sore loser law. So if you ran as an independent, you then couldn't run as one of the main parties. So 11 months in one year are the longest restrictions that have been upheld when this got to the U.S. Supreme Court. Here we have up to 48 months. 48 months of you being locked into a party and you can't change your mind. That's an unconstitutional restriction. So, and, and again, I may be asking a, a dumb question, but the statute reads the two most recent primary elections in Indiana in which the candidate voted were primary elections held by the party in which he claimed affiliation. So um, that would mean that two most recent elections that he voted. So if he voted in one primary, then if he voted in another primary, regardless of whether it was 10 or 15 years ago or 20 years, that would be counted, correct? Yes, Your Honor, and there's a, there's a couple problems with that. One, it doesn't allow for you to change your party for years, right? And the other problem is, in Indiana, it's my understanding that voter records are only maintained for about 10 years. So even if you had voted in another primary, if you can't bring that to the challenge hearing, the commission can and does rule against people, even when the challenger has the burden of proof, when there's no record. So, Is there any statutory uh, limit as far as how long party records have to be kept for? Or is that just kind of per county or per um, county commissioners or whoever keeps that for the local party? I'm not sure what the authority for 10 years is. It was in an amicus brief in another election case, but I, I believe it's 10 years, and that's kind of just the rule now, with electronic record keeping. So this is new that they okay. maintain it. Um, before then, before that rule, it was left to the counties and their record keeping system. So if they threw everything in the basement, if that's what the county did, that's how it was maintained. Uh, 30 seconds, I just want to say that um, while there might not be a facial problem with the Indiana uh, Constitution, there definitely is an is-applied problem here where there's no inherent differences between candidates who get to run and who don't based on what office you're running for, whether you're already a politician, where you live or lived, your age, luck and happenstance, and whether the party chair likes you or not. None of these differences are inherent differences pursuant to the Collins test. This statute absolutely violates our state constitution. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you, Counsel. Um, as always, we appreciate the public coming to watch our oral arguments, and I, I appreciate um, the coloring books and, and everything else for, for the children, and, and it's good to see them being involved. Um, so we appreciate that. Uh, we appreciate also um, the fine arguments of counsel.
and the fine briefing that we have. We will take this under advisement and issue opinion in due course. Thank you. Have a great afternoon. Thank you to your honor.